Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. In a moment, I'll be reading part of the creation account. I appreciate the opportunity to open the word to you this evening. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Rather than doing an exposition of this passage, we're going to be developing a theme. Sometimes it's interesting to take a theme that that comes out in Scripture and trace it through the whole arc of Scripture and see how it's developed over time and over the course of God's revelation. And that's what I want to do this evening. I want to start with this familiar passage in Genesis chapter 2 and then trace the pictures in that passage through Scripture. So I'll call the theme for tonight's study, Two Trees of Redemption. And I hope as we work our way through this study, we'll be reminded that it really is true, that Scripture all hangs together, that there is one flow, there is one overarching message through all of Scripture. And I think we'll see that, that all of Scripture is God's word to us, and it is truly, as it witnesses of itself, profitable. So this evening, we want to jump in and look at these things. And, and this is a, a part of a broader picture that we can draw because in the Old Testament, we're presented with people, events, and, and pictures that are not just of passing historical interest. They're real people, they're real events, but they have broader meaning in the fulfilled person and work of Jesus Christ. And and that's what I want to look at this evening, just pick out one theme to trace it through. So let's seek the Lord's help as we begin. Our dear Father in heaven, it is our great privilege to open your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, we know so very little. We pray that you'd help us to learn and to grow, to see more and more treasure in your word. And may it warm our hearts and may it encourage us as we see your revelation spoken to us. And Father, I pray that you would be honored in the time that we spend together. And Lord, I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 2, and you're going to be reading verses 8 and 9, and then verses 15 to 17. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And when the reading there at the end of verse 17. We're told that the Lord God made many trees in the Garden of Eden. 
However, there are two trees of note, and they're very familiar to you. You've probably heard of these since you were a young child. We have the tree of life, and we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these trees stand distinct from the other trees of the garden, and that's clear from the narrative. We're told that they were in the midst of the garden. The the Hebrew here literally means in the middle. So they were placed in a prominent position right in the middle of the garden. So it was very clear that these trees stood out from the rest of the trees. They were in a prominent position, probably the most prominent position in the garden. And as we understand more about these trees, it's going to make sense that they should stand next to one another, essentially in equal prominence to one another. And it's clear as we look at these trees that these are not trees of the sort that we encounter today. The trees we encounter today do a number of things, and most of them physical in nature. Uh, They have a physical presence. They give shade. They bear fruit, uh, provide firewood, those kinds of things. One could also argue that trees do have the ability to move us emotionally, uh, perhaps inspiring us by their beauty or majesty, especially in the fall in a beautiful uh, picture of all the different colors of the leaves before they, they fall for the winter. Or we could be thankful for their fruit, or an apple tree, or a cherry tree. Or, as in the case of Anne Frank, maybe they give us hope. So trees can move us emotionally as well. But these two trees in the garden are, are different. Because while they were real trees in a real garden, they were also possessed of some sort of spiritual power. Or at least they, they possessed a great spiritual meaning in these two trees. One tree gave life. It stands, if you will, as a proxy for God, the only true giver and sustainer of life. And while we sometimes speak of life as coming from other sources, and we live in a culture that irrationally clings to the idea that life somehow springs out of nothing, we know what the witness of Scripture is, and we know what the witness of our hearts is. All life comes from God. He is the one that provides life. And it's perfectly understandable that God, as the author of life, would create a tree that is endued with the power to sustain life through its fruit. And that's what we see right here in the garden. Now, the purpose of the other tree is not quite as clear. What does a tree of knowledge and good and evil mean? What was it intended to do? Well, we're not told specifically by the text. Some have suggested that it conveyed worldly wisdom. And since Proverbs 3.18 calls godly wisdom a, quote, tree of life, this idea of worldly wisdom would fit very nicely in contrast to that idea. And if true, then we would see a contrast of desiring godly wisdom by obeying his commands contrasted with desiring worldly wisdom by disobeying God's commands. And that, of course, is exactly the way it plays out. And indeed, worldly wisdom is the harvest that we have all reaped 
from our parents' first act of rebellion. And that's true whether the tree imparted it or not. That is the harvest that we have all reaped, worldly wisdom. Now, it is clear that this tree imparts spiritual knowledge of some sort. Now, Dalich suggests that this tree had the ability to impart the knowledge of good and evil in two ways. First is the way that's prescribed by God. Knowledge was to be gained through the discipline of not partaking of it. By resisting the temptation to partake, man would have come to understand the difference between good and evil in a constructive way. But the second way was the path that they took. The fruit itself, the act of taking it, or perhaps a combination of both, imparted to our first parents a destructive knowledge of good and evil. And only too late did they learn that they had crossed a line that they could never go back across. And so we can debate back and forth what the original intent of the tree was. But what becomes reality is very clear. It became a tree of death. It became a tree of death. Partaking of its fruit imparted death to those who ate and to all of their descendants, us. Death reigns on us because of that tree. So we have in the midst of the garden now two trees, a tree of life and a tree of death. And here in the beginning, we already have a fundamental message of the gospel. Because the gospel tells us there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who serve God and those who don't. As John MacArthur calls them, the saints and the ain'ts. There are only two kinds. There are only two paths. The way of life and the way of death. And in the Bible, we see this basic fact repeated for us over and over again in many different ways. There are only two. Those who love God and those who hate him. Those on the ark, those who were not. The sheep and the goats. The wheat and the tares. The wide road and the narrow road. Those for Christ and those against him. The wise and the foolish. Those whose names are in the book of life and those who are not. And we could go on and on. I've only scratched the surface of all the pictures the scripture lays out for us. But it's always two. Because there are only two kinds of people. There is no middle ground. And the question is, which kind are you? Which kind are you? Well, one other important thing to note here before we leave the garden. Prior to the fall, our first parents had free access to the tree of life. And that access was their right based on their own merit. It was their right, based on their own merit. They were created righteous, free of sin, and therefore had free access to the tree of life. Now, that idea is entirely beyond our experience, because Scripture is clear about us. We have no merit whatsoever. None. But our first parents had merit. They had the right to eternal life, and they gave it up, for a handful of fruit. And once it was gone, the price to reacquire it was infinitely greater. And when they fell, everything changed, didn't it? The whole world changed. And for them, specifically, they were expelled from the garden 
And we're told that this was specifically to bar their way to the tree of life. The Lord God, we're told, put a flaming sword in place to guard the way to the tree of life. And we should understand, this wasn't just a matter of housekeeping for the Lord. No, this wasn't just a consequence of their sin, like pain in childbirth or weeds in the garden. No, this was the ultimate result of sin. Barred access to the tree of life, which means death. And Paul sums it up very nicely for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the price for sin. And therefore, our first parents no longer had access to the tree of life based on their own merit. It was no longer possible for them or any of us to obtain eternal life on our own. So effectively, these two trees became polar opposites, representing two different destinies. The one tree means life. The other tree, by virtue of its role in the fall, means death. It is, indeed, an instrument of death. So access to the original tree of life has been cut off. And so for us, there's no sense looking for that tree. And yet, interestingly enough, metaphorically, untold numbers of people hunt for that tree every day, certain that they can obtain eternal life based on their own merit that that is somehow achievable. And it is a lie right out of the pit coming from the very first time in the garden. It is simply not so. The tree of life based on man's merit does not exist in the same way that the Garden of Eden no longer exists. It was swept away in the aftermath of man's rebellion. But the tree of death does still exist. In a figurative sense, at least, we can eat from it whenever we want because it's the world in which we live. It's the wisdom of this world. And the fact is, Satan continues to tempt us to take the fruit from this tree. The fruit was said to be desirable. And that's true, the things of this world, isn't it? They look so desirable. What people have out there looks so good so appealing. Our sinful flesh encourages us just to take a bite, just a taste, just a little bit, not very much, just a little bit. We'll enjoy it. It's good for us. After all, we, we live in this world. How can we operate it in, it in it if we don't understand its ways, if we don't partake of the ways of this world? And by the way, don't forget, we have freedom in Christ, right? So that we can do these things. Well, these all sound like good reasons to partake of that fruit that's dangled in front of us every single day. But we must not. Paul, again, back in Romans chapter 6, verse 15 now, says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Or as the King James puts it, God forbid that we should do such a thing. Well, we can see clearly from Genesis 2 and chapters 2 and 3 that we need a new tree of life because the original one has been cut off from us. And thank the Lord, there is indeed a new tree of life. But I want to see this evening 
how Scripture develops this idea, because it's a very interesting theme. So the first hint about this, further on in Scripture, comes to us in Exodus chapter 15. In a very strange incident, we're told in Exodus 15, verses 22 to 25, this. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then, it, then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And that's the end of the reading. So a little bit of context here. The Israelites had just crossed the Red Sea. They'd gone through all the plagues. They had left Egypt. The Lord had parted the Red Sea. They had come through. The Egyptian army had followed them. The Lord brought the Red Sea back together and destroyed the Egyptian army. And as the Israelites stood on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, they were, for the first time in 400 years, free. Really, truly free. And they celebrated, as well they should have. And the first part of chapter 15 records for us the song of Moses. As they stand there on the shore, and they look out at the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers washing up on, on the shore, and they celebrated God's tremendous deliverance. And then we pick up the narrative here in verse 22, and we're told that from there they had gone three days' journey into the wilderness. And their water supplies are now exhausted, what water they had brought with them. And they finally found water after three days' journey, but the water was bitter, we're told, undrinkable. They couldn't drink the water. And this was a true emergency. I mean, they faced death, almost certain death. There was no other water around. And as we would have expected, the Lord provided water for them in a miraculous way. But it's particularly interesting to look at how he chooses to do it. There are any number of ways the Lord could have provided water for them. But he chose this particular way. And it's this. We're told that he shows Moses a tree... And Moses takes that tree and throws it into the waters, and waters become sweet. They become drinkable. They become life-sustaining. But that should raise an interesting question in your mind, because trees don't make brackish water drinkable. So what gives? Why, why would the Lord tell him to throw a tree in the water? The Lord never does anything without a reason. So why a tree? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that the Lord is giving us a hint here that trees will still have a role to impart life to those otherwise sentenced to death. Now, is that a stretch? Well, let's keep going and let's see if that is indeed what the Lord has in mind. Our next stop is in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy 21. Now, the name of the book, Deuteronomy, literally means second law. 
deuteros, meaning two, or second, and namas, meaning law. And that's exactly what it is. Moses, some 40 years after Mount Sinai, is repeating the law, along with a bit of history and prophecy, for a whole new generation of Israelites. This is the generation that Joshua is going to lead into the promised land and conquer it. And in Deuteronomy 21, Moses is giving some miscellaneous regulations, as he does throughout the book. And there are two passages in particular that I want to look at this evening. The first is in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. And this passage deals with a rebellious son. And listen to what it says. It says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother... And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and shall bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it. In fear. Wow. So, yeah, that certainly would put the fear in you, wouldn't it? If you saw that happen to somebody, uh, I think it would get your attention. Well, I don't want to comment any more on this text. I just want you to file that away, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. The very next passage here in Deuteronomy 21 is also of interest, verses 22 and 23. And here's what it says. It says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land in which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Okay, so in this section, Moses is addressing capital crimes. And he's probably talking more generally to all capital crimes, not just the one that was specifically covered in the passage prior to this one. But like the Exodus 15 passage, these commands should strike us as quite strange. What in the world is he talking about? Because, see, in Israel, the criminals weren't executed by hanging. How were they executed? By stoning, right? We saw that in the previous passage. Criminals were put to death by stoning. So what is he talking about here? Well, the, the text, if we look at it closely, we realize that it is consistent with this idea because the text itself is talking about what to do with the body after execution. Notice that from verse 22. It says, if any man committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, and you shall hang him on a tree. So he's talking about what happens after the execution by stoning. And it appears from this text that there were times, though not in every case, where the body of someone executed was hung publicly on a tree. Now we're not told why. Maybe it was as a deterrent. Uh, Maybe it was to shame the family. We don't know. We can't say it for sure because the text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that it was done in some cases. 
And this text is a regulation to cover this case. And so what it says is if a body of an executed person is hung on a tree, that that body is not to remain on the tree overnight, and it must be buried the same day. So we have to ask, what? (laughs) Why is the Lord giving this command? What What a strange thing to tell people to do. Well, thankfully, we get a little help with this one. Because Paul picks up this passage in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, and this is going going to be our final stop of the evening. Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is going to explain a little bit about the meaning behind this passage in Deuteronomy 21. Now, let me remind you just a little bit of the the basic purpose of this letter to the Galatians. The, The Galatians had come to faith under Paul's ministry, They had been saved from their rank paganism, and they had come to faith with with a great deal of enthusiasm. But after Paul left, others had come in behind him, and they had said, essentially, you know, Paul told you a lot of really good things, but he didn't quite tell you everything. Let us fill in the blanks for you. And what they essentially told them was that in order to be a good Christian— you had to obey the Old Covenant regulations. And first and foremost among those regulations was circumcision. And so these people were telling the Christians, well, you have to follow through in your faith by undergoing circumcision, but also undertaking other parts of the Old Covenant. And Paul writes this letter to correct this very serious error, and it is a serious error in his mind. You go back and read chapter 1. Paul, Paul means business. <laughs> He's not messing around here because in his mind, they have, they have transferred themselves from a salvation by faith to a salvation by works. And Paul wants to stop that dead in its tracks. But when we get to chapter 3, Paul is explaining that salvation has never been found in the keeping of the law. Never. The people who lived before the time of Christ are saved in the exact same way that people after the time of Christ are saved, through faith. And he gives, as his primary example, Abraham. And he illustrates this point. And in verse 10, Paul points out that putting yourself under the law puts you under a curse because it is not of faith, it is of works. And I want to read... From Galatians chapter 10, because I didn't put it in my notes, so I had to grab my Bible. Galatians, I mean, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. And I'm going to read down through verse 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So you see that that Paul is making the point that, that if you come under the law, if you bring yourself under the law, you're under the curse of the law. 
Salvation doesn't come from the law. Salvation comes by faith. And that's where he picks it up in verses 13 and 14. And listen to what he says here. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the, prom the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see that, that Paul has pointed out that Jesus is the one who has come to take the curse for those who are cursed. And that's us. He is the substitute for his people. And by being that substitute, Jesus fulfilled the promise that God had made to Abraham that all nations will be blessed in you. God had promised that to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. And it is fulfilled in the blessings that come to us, to you and to me, through Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this explanation of how Jesus has become the substitute for our sins, Paul does something really interesting. He quotes from our passage in Deuteronomy 21, specifically by saying, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he attributes, by making this quote, this Deuteronomy 21 passage to the work of Jesus Christ. Well, now, knowing something about Deuteronomy 21 now, since we've just been there, we can make several observations about what Paul has said. First, that Paul clearly is referring to the cross in verse 13, but he calls it a tree to match the language of Deuteronomy 21. And that should strike you as a little bit odd, because a cross is made out of two pieces of lumber, isn't it? Just two beams that are strapped together. And I don't know about you, but I don't normally call lumber a tree. It, you know, if, if I were to go out and I were to take four-by-four four posts and I were to, to dig holes and put them in the ground in order to make a fence, I'm not concerned that those posts are suddenly going to sprout and turn into a living tree. It's not going to happen, is it? Because it's dead. Lumber is a dead tree, and so we don't refer to it as a tree. So why would Paul call the cross a tree? Well, let's hang that for just a moment. Second observation, isn't it interesting that when Jesus was crucified, that the regulations set forth in Deuteronomy 21 were followed to the letter? You think about that? Think about what happened. His body was hanging on that cross, and he died. And the concern was, get his body off that cross before the end of the day. And Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. He asks for the body. He takes the body down, and Jesus was buried that very same day, exactly as Deuteronomy 21 prescribed. Not for that reason, but nevertheless, Deuteronomy 21 was fulfilled in how Jesus was handled after he died. Well, the third thing that we can observe out of this quote 
is that we can't help but be struck by the context of Deuteronomy 21. Remember the passage right before the one about the hanging on the tree. Remember the one that I read first? The one about the rebellious son? I said I'd come back to this. It is about the disobedient son and about the fact that he is to be put to death and he is to be hung on a tree as an example because he was cursed. And now we have the Lord Jesus who stands in sharp contrast to that disobedient son. He was the perfectly obedient son who hung on the tree and became cursed. He became cursed in the place of the disobedient son. And guess who the disobedient son is? It's me and it's you. It's every one of us. And he died in our place and hung there on the tree. As rich and beautiful in its scope. Okay, but what about the tree? Jesus died for us, and that is wonderful. But what about the tree? I'm talking about trees, right? Well, think about the cross, the thing that Paul calls a tree. What was it really? What was the cross itself, that physical thing that we call a cross? It was a dead tree, wasn't it? It was a dead tree, two pieces of lumber strapped together. And not only was it a dead tree, it was also an instrument of death. It was a device used for the precise purpose of putting people to death. That's what it was. And it was very good at putting people to death. But if you think about that, that makes that cross sound a whole lot like that tree all the way back in the garden, doesn't it? The instrument of death. Except now, it has the Lord of glory hanging on it. So shall we think of that cross as a proxy for that tree back in the garden? Perhaps, because indeed the cross is the ultimate result of the fruit of that tree. It led us straight to the cross because it was the only way. It was the only way that we could be saved. And so here's the cross. A dead tree used as an instrument of death. And the Lord Jesus gets hung on it. And something miraculous happens. Jesus dies on it. And when he did, he transformed that instrument of death into something completely different. An instrument of life. An instrument of life. It's as if that tree came back from the dead. It came back to life. Is there any biblical picture of such a thing? How about Aaron's rod? Remember that? Number 17? Aaron's rod, it was a walking stick. It was a dead piece of wood. And it was put with a bunch of other walking sticks in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And the next morning, what did they find? Found a tree in full bloom and with fruit on it. A tree, a dead tree, come back to life. You know, when the world looks at the cross, what do they think of? They think of death. When we look at the cross, 
we think of life. Because with God, all things are possible. I said a while ago, we needed a new tree of life, and we have one. It's the cross. And because of the cross, we who know him have access to a new tree of life. And that tree of life appears again. It will appear again in the new heavens and the new earth. We're told this in the book of Revelation, verse, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, which, by the way, the first hymn that we sang in the title actually quoted this passage. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Our faith is not in vain, not by any stretch. And we will access this tree, not based on our own merit, but based on the merit of Jesus Christ. And we'll rejoice in it. And here's an interesting thought. If Adam and Eve are there, and I suspect they will be, they will partake of this very same tree along with us in full appreciation of what was lost and what was won again at the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our dear Father, Lord, what shall we say? We lost it all in our parents, and yet you gave it back through the sacrifice of your Son on the cross. And now we have access to a new tree of life, a better one than the first one, because it's based on the merits of Jesus, who will never fail. Oh, Father, may we rejoice to see that this was always your purpose from the very beginning, and your purposes have not failed, nor will they fail. May we praise you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.